Welcome to The Marissa Morrison Show, where you'll discover your inner power to create the life you desire. I'm Marissa, and I began my business as a 19-year-old, single mom, broke, and in college. Today, I run a seven-figure business that teaches entrepreneurs how they can have it all without the frustration and overwhelm. Abundance, peace, joy, and overflowing love are available to you. And I'm here to show you the way to a richer, more vibrant life that radiates into your business, bringing you higher profits and profound fulfillment. You see, when you connect with the miracle that is you, you become an unstoppable force that doesn't need to push for success. Consider this an invitation to step into a new world of possibilities, empowering perspectives, and radical breakthroughs. Buckle up and get ready to see the world around you in an entirely new light. This is your life, and you don't need to wait to experience your dreams. It all starts now. Here we are again together, joining this journey and this adventure of revealing intimate and vulnerable stories of my life so that you access genuine life lessons that have led me to where I am today. And I know that through this vulnerability, this removing of the curtain and pulling back this appearance of what seems to be a dream life of where I am today, which I am so very grateful for, I want you to know the real story so that you can then tap into your own story, your own life lessons, and to begin to heal the past so that you can transform your life into the vision that you hold in your heart. Because my friend, it is possible. Now, as we continue on, I want to pause for a moment and just say thank you for showing up. Thank you for believing in me. Thank you for being here. I genuinely adore you. I believe in you. And this podcast would not exist without you. And as you know, we're still at the infancy of the podcast. So your thoughts, opinions, what you want to learn really matters to me. So I would love to hear from you. Always feel free to send an email or a DM, or if you are called or feeling led to do so, I would be so grateful for a review. As you know, those are so important. And so if you are gaining anything whatsoever from these episodes and the lessons and teachings that I'm giving you, I would just give you a huge big hug and just say thank you so much for leaving a review. It would really, really mean the world to me. So we are picking up here in my story. If you missed chapter one, you can tap into that episode and get caught up. But today we're picking up in fifth grade. And this was a really interesting time. I had, as I shared before, you know, I was going to different schools and my parents were really working through, you know, my ADD and this rambunctiousness that I had within me where I was not focusing in school. And My grades were C's and D's, oftentimes F's, and they were really wanting to fix this because, as I shared, this was like the only way that my dad saw that I would be successful. Born 1926, you know, if you're not going to college, which you need good grades for, then how are you ever going to create a life that is successful? And so I was very much pressured in this area of my life, and so I was starting a new school. And this new school was exciting. Every time you go into a new environment with new people, it's exciting and thrilling. And it's an opportunity to have a new identity or to have a different first impression. And so 
at this time in my life, I was also stepping into that early phase that many of us, if you're a woman, you know what I mean. And males go through this too. I have two boys and I'm here to say my oldest is 15 at the time right now. And I see it. (laughs) But there's this kind of limbo, this bridge that you're walking across of being a child, but yet becoming a woman. And of course, I was nowhere near becoming a woman, but this realization of what I would be one day, that child that was me that wanted to be an adult, that wanted to do adult things and experience adult things, was now beginning to consider those possibilities for myself. So much so that here in fifth grade, I started stuffing my bra. Yes, (laughs) I'm raising my hand as one of those girls that did that. I wanted to be attractive and liked. But I actually even remember, I'll tell you, I had not started my period yet. And I remember being in the PE locker room and one of the girls that had was asking me these questions about, you know, how she started a period and all these things. And I just gave it away because at the time I thought that a period was every day. I didn't realize that there was a cycle. (laughs) Funny memories looking back, but that was definitely one that stuck in my mind because I felt like a fool. I just felt like an absolute uh, imposter. I wasn't yet in that, you know, developing era yet. And I wanted to be, you know, girls around me were developing and I wanted that for myself. And so here I am in fifth grade, new school, and not too long after, something started to happen. And it really shook me to my core and my confidence in what I thought of myself. At the time, I played it off like it didn't bother me very much, but it really did. And this thing, this experience that I had was embarrassing. And I think a part of myself wanted to protect me. The big, strong part that actually is weak comes off as defensiveness. And this part of us that pretends like it doesn't affect us and pretends like it doesn't hurt. But deep down, it really, really did. And so it was one thing, you know, before I had kind of been picked on and it was like no big deal. But at this time, people started to call me Sparky. And there were some guys that would bark at me. And, you know, I had braces, I had acne, I had really short hair. It really affected my own self-image. I even remember this one in particular gentleman who was the main instigator. I mean, I would be walking in the gym and all the kids were sitting on the bleachers and all the kids would be like, Sparky, (laughs) if you can imagine. And this one in particular guy who was a cool kid, he was in eighth grade. I was in fifth grade, as you can imagine. He seemed super cool. And we were outside. There wasn't very many people around, as I recall. There may have been one or two others, but... He told me that if I got on my knees and barked, that he would date me. And I proceeded to do so. And of course, he didn't. And so it was almost as if during that time, that year, going to that school, trying to be this woman, but yet being a child, I wanted to be accepted. I wanted so desperately, first came in the form from my dad, and now here I am at school. And it was almost like living a nightmare. But yet, because of the part of me that was still childlike and still free and still curious about the world, 
I didn't put a lot of weight on that experience. I certainly suppressed the experience. It was traumatic, but yet I went through it with joy. It's a challenge to describe what the experience was like, but it certainly shaped who I am today. And in this, I had one best friend, and her name was Haley. Every time I would switch schools, I would have like one best friend. I never really had more than one good friend. And so I was spending the night at her house. She was spending the night at my house. And I think that that really carried me through that experience to have one friend who loved me and didn't judge me, you know, was there for me unconditionally. It really meant a lot. And one thing that we would do for fun back in those days, about five minutes from my house where I was being raised, we had a roller rink. So, you know, skate. Yes, that's called. I almost said ice skates, but skates. You know, you go and you skate around and things like that. And there was a guy who I went to school with who was there. And again, I'm nine years old. Okay. So I'm a child, <laughs> very much so a child. And by the way, I stuffed my bra till I was 13 years old. Okay. Just super vulnerable, but I'm telling you right now, it stuck around. <laughs> but when I was nine years old, I was there and this guy was there. His name was Michael. And we were quote unquote boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, you know how it goes at that age. And I don't even think I had like a phone yet, you know, like I didn't have any, there wasn't like a real connection or relationship. It was just for labels. And we were standing at the ring kind of near the area where you would eat. And there are these girls there that are like, well, if you guys are dating, then you need to kiss. And there was this pressure and everyone was watching. We're standing there. And sure enough, I closed my eyes and we leaned in and there was a little peck. <laughs> and so that was my first kiss. I was pressured into it. And it all, all of this, as you will see, goes back into wanting to be accepted, wanting to be good enough, wanting to be the one that's cool. And so during this time, actually, surprisingly, I was still, believe it or not, sleeping with my parents. Yes, I was sleeping in their bed. And I even remember sitting down and, you know, they had like a bench at the end of their bed. And my parents told me, okay, Marissa, this is the last time that you will ever sleep in our bed. This is it. Do we have this agreement? And we like shook hands on it. And, <laughs> and so that was it. That was my last time that I slept in the bed with my parents. But the same year that I got my first kiss was the same year I stopped sleeping in bed with my parents. Kind of ironic, the dichotomy there. But that was my experience. I was this child running away from my childhood. And another experience in this part of my life that I think is important to mention was absolutely, you know, extremely traumatic, but also a huge point of becoming and experience and gaining wisdom in my life. We had gotten these two dogs. One was named KK, and she was a, oh, what's it called? Chihuahua. That's it. It was like, I guess maybe eight or nine weeks old. I don't know, but it was very new puppy. And snorkels, because <laughs> we had just come back from snorkeling, of course, as a child. It was like so exciting. And my mom let me name the dog. His name was Snorkels. And it was a miniature Yorkie. And I remember as a child, I would play sick all the time. I mean, it was just something I did. 
obviously to get attention and to, you know, get the love and affection that I wanted as a child. It was, you know, something I did. And so I remember there was a heat pad in our bed and my dad was in the living room and I was just like, you know, playing with the dogs. I'm not really sick. And this young, innocent version of myself who had no thoughts of harming the animals and no thoughts of how what I was doing would be dangerous in any way, I was playing catch with the dogs. I realize now, obviously as an adult, this is very clearly something you don't do with a puppy, very obviously. But I was left to myself, full of ADD, full of (laughs) this childlike, playful energy that I just didn't know what to do with. And I was just playing catch with my dogs. And at one point, I threw the chihuahua too high and it hit the ceiling and then just laid on the bed. And I was horrified. I just was like totally ashamed and full of guilt and didn't know if the dog was alive or not. I, you know, of course, not receiving a lot of affection from my father in the form that I wanted and expected, and having this constant, you know, telling me that I need to be better and telling me that I need to do better brought this shame. I didn't want to face it. I didn't want my dad to know. I thought maybe if I could get away with this where it looked like it just happened, you know, that would be better. And again, you know, I'm nine years old. I'm not emotionally equipped or prepared to handle this situation. All I know is that I have been letting my dad down and I didn't want to do it again. And I was embarrassed. I was sad. This was my pet, you know? So I had a variety, a multitude of emotions within me. And so I carried the dog into what we had, like a little playpen that we were keeping the dogs. And I just kind of like carried it and put it down. Like nothing was there. I remember my dad was watching TV and I had to walk directly in front of my dad. And I put the dog down, you know, just like, okay. Later, my dad had a business partner over and, you know, I'm thinking I got away with it, that everything was okay. Like they're just going to find KK and just, you know, sad, poor KK, you know, that happened to her and not pin it on me, even though, again, it was, of course, very sad for me. I was mortified, you know. I didn't even know if she was really dead or not. I didn't know what to think. And so my dad sat me down and had KK in a shoebox And he showed me the dog and he said, I know that you killed this dog. And of course, I denied it. Of course, I was defensive. I pushed away and tried to prove my innocence because that's what I knew to do. And the next day, my dad had, just get ready, guys, this is a little gruesome, okay, but I'm going to be honest. My dad had actually skinned the dog and was showing me on the neck where there was blood and how I had broken the neck. And then he proceeded to, for whatever reason, (laughs) to this day, this is one of the things I literally cannot wrap my head around with my dad. You know, I can see his intention of wanting me to learn to be honest. I can see how in his own consciousness that he rationalized and came up with this narrative that this would teach me a lesson. But as a parent today, I have a very difficult time coming to the same page as him. But he hung the skin on the wall, the fence that went around our pool. And so I had nightmares for months about this. And it really 
really shook me and was quite traumatic for me. And I think going through this period of my life, you know, still the abuse from my father, verbal, physical, losing my pet, knowing it was my fault, being proven that I was wrong in a gruesome way, and then, you know, having other kids call me a dog and bark at me, you know, I was surprisingly a joyful kid. I was surprisingly, you know, on the outside, very playful. And it's like I wanted to have fun so much that, like, I didn't want to face the pain. So I would just kind of bring myself to this place of having fun. That was just like how I handled it. I suppressed all the emotions. I put it off and I just went about my merry way. But the way that I see myself now at the time, I would spend a lot of time alone. You know, whether it was in my room or I remember sitting outside a lot and I just started singing. I just felt led to sing and I just started singing and I'll never forget sitting outside the first time that I had achieved vibrato, you know, and I all of a sudden was like, oh my gosh, I did it, (laughs) you know, kind of like, oh, that kind of thing. And I just was so excited. I started to play with my voice. I started to write music. I started to record it. Shortly after that, I started to play the piano and the guitar later in years, but It was something that was a birth of a passion for me, and I began to gain confidence, and it was another area of confidence for me in addition to swimming, because by this time, I had gotten pretty dang good at swimming, and I was winning every competition. You know, everyone on the swim team knew that I was going to win whatever I swam in, and with swimming, you know, we were going every single day, all year round. It wasn't like a swim team for school. It was a swim team that I went to every single day. And during these competitions, the swim meets is what they call them, my dad would, my parents, I should say, were very much, you know, we were serious. We were a family that was going to win, you know. And my mom and my dad both would say, you know, all these other kids, you know, you see them eating Snickers and Skittles and these, you know, energy drink or uh, fruity drinks have sugar in it whatever the case may be, my parents were like, you know, this gives you a boost, but it doesn't last very long. So I would, you know, watch these kids do the kid thing. Not that it was wrong or right. Again, this is my own perspective and my own experience as I recall it. But I couldn't have those sweets. You know, I was very limited in that playfulness of the sport. Instead, it was very, very serious. And even though I was winning, my dad would still point out my technique and my stroke and how I was swimming and what could be better. And I know, I genuinely see now his intention was good and that he wanted to help me. But at the time it was like, I'm winning, but you're not celebrating my success. Like, even if you are proud, you're not conveying it to me. And again, this was how I, as a child, expected him to give me the praise. But since it wasn't how I expected, I didn't receive it. And when I would win, even though my dad was the way he was, everyone else would celebrate it. And it made me feel valuable. It made me feel like I was a winner, like I was achieving. So these are two main areas of my life where I was starting to grow in my confidence, swimming and in music. Now, another experience, another layer of my life and who I am today is that because I was born when my dad was 63, 
It was the retirement era of his life, although he did not stop working until he was 89, might I add, which we will get into that as we go. But he was an overachiever, as you can tell, and he was not going to (laughs) stop. Life, no matter how old he got, he was going to keep going. But it was that era of his life where he wanted to explore, he wanted to experience. And so we were going out of the country doing international travels every single year, sometimes multiple times a year. So by the time I was 10, 11, 12, 13, I had visited over 23 different countries, including most of Europe, Mexico, South America, Canada, New Zealand, Norway, Ireland. I had been to Africa. I'd been to China. You know, I had been to many countries. And this really allowed me to see the world, you know, instead of staying in my own box. And I think this was, you know, a huge part of me healing in my own experience. You know, when we see others that suffer, we begin to connect with them. And this connection brought a sense of oneness for me. You know, where I had pain, others had it too. And it was just a different form. And I realized that it was all around the world. And that made what I went through a little bit more okay, a little bit more understandable and accepted for me. I don't think that I had this like clarity of thought, but as I'm saying it to you now, but it was a feeling, it was a knowing deep within that this is life and that's okay. And it was just a seed that was planted. And on these trips, one very specific memory that I have is my dad and I were on the plane going back to America and we were like sitting next to each other and I wanted the armrest that he had and he wanted the armrest that I had and he's the dad. So I needed to respect him. And as you know, the relationship wasn't very solid. There wasn't much respect (laughs) there. And so the strong-willed child that I was began to fight him. And so much so that I put my nails into his skin and was like fighting back. And then he proceeded to do the same to me. So here we are clawing each other, literally on our arms, fighting for an armrest, which is, you know, so sad, but also now maybe a little comical to think back to how ridiculous this, you know, this battle that I was in my mind perceiving with my dad. And I felt through all of this, this constant battle to prove my worth. And this manifested because, let me tell you, when we have a deep desire to prove our worth, we are going to act in a way that will do the opposite of that. Because if we feel that we need to prove our worth, then we deeply within do not feel worthy. Because if we feel worthy in our own right, we will not feel the need to prove it to others. We just know that we are. So this manifested in detention, write-ups, low grades, retaliation, and increased defensiveness. And I just wanted to prove I had a battle to fight and I was going to stand on my side because you know what? In my mind, no one else was. And so I had me and that was it. That was the only way that I would ever prove it because I had to fight for it. And as I shared in the, the prior chapter one, you know, I would constantly hear, you can't change anyone but yourself, Marissa. Give him to God. 
let it go, you know, surrender this. And even though I was not actively intentionally in my mind doing so, hearing this constantly, I really believe was a way of me beginning to feel the sensation of letting go, of releasing my dad, of trying not to make him what I wanted to be, but to accept him. But this didn't show up, you know, as a young child, 9, 10, 11 years old, right away. This didn't manifest until I was much, much later into my early adult years, which as we keep going, you will discover. And as I shared before, you know, although I had this immense strife and arguing and abuse with my father, and yes, there were still sweet loving moments in that mix, I always had the solid source of love for my mom. You know, her love for me was unconditional. When my dad would be hard on me, she would come to me and give me compassion and understanding. And when she would punish me, she would show me that it could be done a different way. And there were several experiences that my mom gave me that extended this compassion to others, not just through traveling the world as I shared and seeing these people and what their walks of life looked like, but also through going to the nursing home. My mom would go, and still to this day, she goes and she cuts hair. She's 74 right now. And on Wednesdays and Fridays, she's in the nursing home cutting hair because that's the gift and the value that she has to bring. And she just loves on these people. It has been her heart for a very long time. And so when we would go, I would sing to them. That, of course, brought more confidence in the singing, but it was a way of connecting and seeing other people, different stages of life, different walks of life, and experiencing what it felt like to bring joy to others. And in this, as you know, my mom was very devoted to her faith and her walk with God, and she would bring me to her prayer meetings. And there was one meeting in particular that I recall where they had the laying on of hands. And I sat in this chair, and there were like four to six women all around me, and they were speaking in tongues. If you don't know what it is, it's basically like another language that is believed that the devil cannot hear, okay? Now, I'm not saying that I am on one side or the other. This is just simply my experience. And they were laying hands on me and casting out demons. And I remember, you know, although it's so interesting, although this was an attempt to show love to me and to be compassionate for me and to stand on my side, looking back, I can see now how this further affirmed within me that something was wrong with me, that something needed to be changed about me, that I had something in me that wasn't good and that I needed to be freed of this evil that was around me and in me and causing me to act in a way that was not good. And so I continued through this experience with my mom, of course, through this love and compassion that she gave me, her and I developed a closer relationship. But this also, because of her faith and this deep desire to be good and to follow what was right and stay away from what was wrong, it brought very strict limitation into my life in the form of Halloween. I never did Halloween. I never, ever did Halloween. It's not something I got to experience. I did not, was not allowed to, although I might have snuck it as I got older, 
listen to, quote unquote, bad music. I was always in church, always in the youth group. And, you know, there again, it's like I have this desire to prove myself to my father. But with this unconditional love of my mother, there was this, you need to be on the right standing with God. And so I'm, you know, again, even though my mother showed me this compassion, this love, it's like, here I am again trying to now I have to earn myself and prove myself and be good and do the right things for God, because if not, I'm damned. And so this strife in my own life, but also between my parents continued. And as I got older, it just escalated. It did not end. And we had moved into a new home where I learned many more lessons and we'll pick up, you know, from here. But one of the last stories I want to leave you with is that we were at this home and here I am, you know, 10, 11 years old. I'm stronger. And I'm at a point where I've put up with this physical and verbal abuse for so long that I'm not going to deal with it anymore. And my dad, you know, had hit me and I was so full of rage and anger that I hit him back. And it was the last time my dad ever hit me. And believe it or not, kind of shocking and ironic, perhaps, maybe not to some of you, but to me, it still is. My parents, my dad, called the cops on me. And they handcuffed me and sat me down in my living room and told me that I could go to juvie because now I was over the age of 10 and that I dare not continue to act this way because my future will not look good. That is where this chapter will end. (laughs) And so looking back, although there are stories of intense trauma, letdowns, setbacks, and disapproval, strife, you know, there's also a lot of beauty in my story where I was able to witness different cultures, discovered compassion and acceptance. I learned to love myself, even if I didn't feel it from others. I increased the depth and richness of this connection to an infinite source of life and love that was always present and all around me, guiding me, holding me. It was also in these years that I learned the pattern of thought that I needed to earn my value through actions and through my successes. And there is so much from this time in my life that I continue to go back to and lean upon subconsciously because it's not that I'm actually going back in my mind. It's that those experiences are recorded in my soul as a feeling, as a knowing, and as wisdom. And the same is true for you. What you have experienced in your past, some of us do go back and some of us do ruminate over those experiences in a way that is sabotaging our life And we will have many episodes on how to heal the past. But regardless of if you even go back, your nervous system, your body, your subconscious, your soul, it remembers. And it manifests in how you respond to others, how you think about the world, what you believe is possible for yourself. And so I know deep within that I would not be sitting here today if I did not go to those nursing homes, if I was not picked on as a child, if I did not see the world in a different way than most children do, because it is those experiences that increase my compassion and my empathy, my ability to put myself in someone else's shoes. That was something that I learned at a very young age, and I am so very grateful for 
because I would literally not be who I am today. And I would not change who I am today for anything. I love all that I am. And that's what I hope for you is that you can begin to see the magic, the power, the unlimited potential that lies within you. But first, you must move through your life and come to a place of acceptance for all that you've experienced, for the story that is only yours. Now, in this experience, you know, although there was a lot of beautiful wisdom that I learned, there was also this lack, this smallness that I picked up. It was this idea that I needed to earn my value through my successes, through my skill, through my actions, through my showing up and being a people pleaser even, which so many of us women are, you know, we can raise our hands and say, I'm a people pleaser. And we will have many more episodes on how to use that as your power. But for right now, I want you to just consider where did you pick that up in your own journey? Where was it that you first learned that you needed to prove your value? Where was it that you realized, oh my goodness, when I act this way, when I achieve this, when I do this, I get praise, I get recognition, I feel loved from these actions. Therefore, I am going to continue to seek that approval through my success, through earning an income, through being good, being on the right side. And just start to become aware of these things. You know, this belief would follow me into my adulthood, you know, and I deeply ached to be loved by my father. And as we continue, there's a beautiful story of healing that's coming. But at this point today, I can see now that he loved me deeply. But I had a very specific expectation of how he would give me that love, what that would look like, how he would act in order to affirm that love within me. It's that I wasn't loving myself to be whole. I was looking for it somewhere else. And the thing is, as I shared in the last episode, is that what we believe is what we perceive. And so I perceived a father that was angry and vengeful and unpleasable and that I would never be good enough for him. And that really affected our relationship and it affected the relationship that I had with myself. And so how is this showing up, this idea of, you know, needing to prove yourself showing up in your own life? And in what ways is this pattern showing up in your relationships, in your business, and your financial success? This thought of, I need to be good enough so that. Because you see, when it comes to manifesting a life that is your dream reality, it is these beliefs that keep you stuck. Because if you believe that you have to earn it, then you are reconfirming in your mind that you are not worthy of it and you have to do something to be worthy of it. And as I shared before, your worthiness must first come within. And that is the only way to truly ever feel worthy because the reality is, is that it doesn't matter how many times someone says, I'm so proud of you. I believe in you. You're doing such a good job. That pattern of earning value and proof and love and acknowledgement and recognition and validation, that pattern, you're like, oh, I was noticed. They saw it. But then 
instead of really allowing it to be proof in itself that, hey, I am worthy. It reaffirms that pattern of, I did this, so I got that. Now I need to get back to doing more. And this is one of the biggest limitations that I see. And as business owners, entrepreneurs, moms, wives, parents, fathers, husbands, wherever you are in your walk, I want to let you know that it is by origin of creation that you are life itself breathing with a heartbeat that you are worthy, that you are worthy of your wildest dreams. And when you tap into this element of worthiness, this feeling, because that's really what it is, it's a feeling, it's a knowing, it's a emotion. When you tap into that, get ready because your life is about to transform. That is when you begin to serve in a way that you never thought possible. It's whenever you see your dreams and you thought they were big and you realize that there is so much more than even what you thought you wanted. And that is my hope for you. So today's homework is to reflect, yes, on my story, but even more so on your own. Where do you see a red thread throughout my life, your life, others out there? Because we are all a lot more alike than we realize. We tell ourselves, oh, well, their story is so much worse. And bringing this idea of not honoring our own story, it's like, well, there's other people out there who are suffering more than me. So, you know, it's not really that big of a deal. And in actuality, we are just procrastinating our own healing when we do this. We are not giving honor and light to our own hearts and our own experience because, yeah, what is worse is actually only perceived. It's only the viewer and the beholder that can determine whether it's worse. You know, someone who you think has a worse story may look at your story and say, you know what, your story is way worse and you would have a fun laugh with each other to realize that, you know, we often want what others have or want to trade our experience for someone else. And it, our healing and our breakthroughs are not found there. Our healing and our breakthrough is found in acceptance and remapping the story into one of wisdom, one of experience, one of seeing how it cultivated us to who we are today and who we're meant to be. And my friend, I want you to know that no matter what, you are right where you need to be. Whether you are surrounded by overwhelm and frustration and emptiness and loss, it is okay. It is okay to be where you are because it is a part of you becoming who you will be and tapping into the power that is you. I love you and I adore you. Thank you for taking this journey with me. I have so much more coming your way. I hope that you spend time reflecting and know that this episode, the conversation that we've had together is going to blossom within your mind over the next week, the next month. Open your heart because you are going to receive so much more than I am individually able to give you. It is within your own being that the secret of life, your joy, your success, your fulfillment, your freedom, that is where it lies. And it's up to you to tap into that, to connect to that, to be open to that, to be vulnerable, to let down the defenses and say, you know what? I have been putting that off. You know what? I haven't dealt with that yet. You know what? I have been lying to myself. I am worth it. And until that happens, you're still right where you are. You're right where you are. And it's beautiful. All right, my friend, this is all we have for today's episode. I love you. I adore you. 
And I just can't wait to hear the breakthroughs that are coming your way. Here we are again at the conclusion of another episode. I'm sending you a virtual hug, and I want you to know I am so proud of you for staying committed to your dreams. It's all possible, and it begins with you. If you'd like to discover more support, visit marissamorrison.net, where I have created opportunities for you to connect, expand, and to evolve into your greatest potential. Until next time, friend, I'm thinking of you and sending you all my love.